Everybody doing good this morning? Good. If you have a Bible, I want to ask you to take that Bible and open with me to First uh, Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22. And listen, if you don't have a Bible and maybe you don't bring it with you because you think you know it's going to be on the screen, uh, I would encourage, um, it's not going to be on the screen today, is it? <laughs> Joke's on you, right? All right. If you have a Bible, I want to ask you to open it. But in all reality, too, if you don't bring a Bible uh, each week, I would encourage you to do that because as we're preaching and as we're going through the Word, I, I just believe that God, He speaks through His Word in a special way. And I believe that as you can follow along with me or with Jeremy or whoever's preaching, I just believe there's something special in that. So I would encourage you to, to bring that Bible and go along with us because in reality, what I have to say this morning is not that important, but whatever God has to say to us through His Bible is, is really important, right? So uh, if you have a Bible, open up to First Peter chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 22. While you're getting there, I'll give you just another second to get there. I want to tell you all about uh, how the kind of the, my, my house works. Um, at my house, we have a, a kitchen table. We don't have a dining room. We have just one kitchen and table. Uh, we have one table in the kitchen. And every morning when I sit down, there's this uh, thing that holds candles, right? And like it has like five or six candles, and it sits in the middle of the table. And let me tell you what it serves as a purpose. Absolutely none, right? It's in my way 98% of the time, right? But my wife likes it, so that's what it's there for, right? So it's a centerpiece. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? A centerpiece that go on a table, right? And if that table don't have a centerpiece, nothing else looks right on the table if you're a woman. Guys just look and see a table, right? But So women say that, man, that, that centerpiece just sets that table off, right? It's just so nice. All right? Let me just give you another little example of something being in the center. Uh, me and my wife have, a, have what I would consider a good marriage. We don't really argue about a lot, a lot, but when we do argue, it's about stupid stuff. Everybody tracking with me? So the biggest argument we've ever gotten in, uh, one of the biggest, I won't call it the biggest, it was a big one, though, uh, was when we were trying to hang pictures on a wall one day and trying to find the center of the wall, right? Because what's center to me and what's center to her is two different things, right? And then I'm getting frustrated because, to be honest, I don't really care where center's at. Like, let's just throw it up there, right? And so, I mean, trying to find the center of that wall to hang a picture, right? Who would have thought that would have been such a big argument? But it was a big deal. The picture has to be in the center, right? Or why? Everything else is messed up, right? So now we don't even hang pictures. Uh, I, either, I either get my mother-in-law to come do it or I rope a friend into doing it. I don't hang pictures anymore. Like, I learned my lesson, right? So today I'm telling you all these things about being in the center, having a centerpiece, because we're, we're finally getting to the point in 1 Peter where we're going to see Peter's centerpiece of this book. Like, we're coming to the point where this is what is most important to Peter, right? If this is not there, throw the rest of it away. Right? So First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. Listen, this is Peter's centerpiece. This is what everything else revolves around. I want us to read it, and then we're going to work through a big chunk of text today. But I want you to have that in mind. Put in your mind that this is the most important thing to Peter All right, this morning. Okay, let's read it. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 22, this is what it says. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continue, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray real quick. God, I thank you so much for your word, Father God. You, God, you give us your word, and you are good and mighty and honest in your word, God. Your word is, is true, dear God. I accept everything in this Bible this morning as truth, God. And Lord, I pray that as truth is preached today, God, I pray that, that, your, that you would just come through your truth and change hearts, God. Uh, Lord, I pray that I would be silenced, God, and that you would be magnified, Jesus Christ, as we read, as we study th- your word today. You are, you are so good. You are, you are so mighty, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, 1513 was a world, uh, was a year that just literally changed the world. If you've been coming here a while, you've heard me tell this story before because it's just such a good illustration. In 1513, up until that point, right, everybody who was, uh, had any education at all believed that the earth was the center of the solar system, right? And everything else revolved around the earth, right? So the sun wasn't the center of the solar system. The earth was. The sun revolved around the earth. Mars and Pluto and all those other planets, they revolved around the earth. In other words, what people thought was, hey, we are the center of everything, right? You get that? People, like, people thought God loves us so much, he put us at the center, and he's moving everything else around us. We're, mo- we're the most important, right? Until one guy, he was looking through his telescope one day and noticed that, guys, we're not exactly right here. Like, I think we've been wrong all along. As a matter of fact, I don't think we're at the center of the universe. I don't even think we're the closest planet to the sun. And so a guy named Copernicus actually figures out that what is at the center of the universe? The sun is. And everything else is revolving around the sun, right? So that happened. And guess what? People literally lost their minds. Like you would have thought they would have been like, hey, man, good find. You know, we're glad you figured this out. People lost their minds because they were like, we have to be the center of the universe, right? We, God loves us the most, right? We're, we're the center of the universe. You're, you've lost your mind if you think we're not the center. Right? But it was a revolution. It changed everything. And so, not unlike the people way back then, I don't know if you know this, but we're selfish. We're real selfish. And we might not say it out loud, but in our minds, you know what we believe? Life's really about us. Like, God's really about me. My life, my life the main thing in my life is I, that I be happy. Right? We, we, don't, we might not say it out loud, but we, this is the way we think. Right? We're selfish. And guys, we're reading a section of scripture today where Peter's goal is to provide us with that same kind of revolution. He's trying to change everything about the way we think. Today, he wants to help us see that the way we live every day, all right? He wants to help us see that the way we live in our marriages, the way we live on our jobs, the way we live in society, this all about Jesus and the good news that he's conquered the grave and is alive today, right? Peter's trying to tell us today, stop thinking you're the center of everything and look at Jesus and realize he is the center of everything, right? That's, that is Peter's goal in this little section. In a world, guys, we live in a world, I don't know, just turn on the TV. We live in a world that says life is about me, right? We live in a world that says your number one priority is your self-fulfillment. Now, what, who, who should you look out for? Numero uno, right? Right? You better take care of yourself, because why? Nobody else is going to, 
right? That's the world we live in. In a world that says, think about yourself, protect yourself, promote yourself, love yourself, fulfill yourself. Peter is going to call us today to deny ourselves and look at Christ and say, Jesus, you are most important. So that's what we're doing here today. And as I was reading this, I was asking myself, how, God, can we live this kind of life? And you know what Peter turns us back to? The cross. The cross. That section we just read about, it's all about the cross. So I want you to get this. We're going to be reading, a sec- we're going to be studying a section of Scripture from 2.13. So if you've got your Bible, look there. We're going to be studying a, scri- a section of Scripture we're in, from 2.13 to 3.18, all right? And in this section of Scripture, Peter calls us to look at four areas of our life. And he calls us to see that those four areas of our life revolve all around God. But here's the cool thing about this, all right? In the dead center of this section, Peter stops and puts Jesus at the middle of it, all right? So the cross and Jesus and him being crucified is what stands at the center of this text. And the implication here, guys, is this. This text revolves around Jesus. It revolves around the cross. And you know what that means for your life? It should be revolving around Jesus. It should be revolving around Christ. as As I was preparing this message, I wonder how many of you wake up in the morning and Christ is the first thing on your mind. I wonder how many of you go to bed at night and Christ is the last thing on your mind. I wonder how many of you eat lunch and Christ is on your mind. I wonder how many of you go to work and then come and lay down beside your wife or put your kids to bed and think about Christ. A lot of times, what is he? He's distant. He's not at the center. And Peter is saying that at the center of our lives should be Jesus. Here's something pretty cool. Before verse 22, there are 46 verses in this book. Y'all tracking with me? Y'all can count. One to 46, right? Okay, 46. After verse 25, there are 54. That's about as close to the middle as you can get, isn't it? In a book this size, guess what? The whole thing Peter's trying to tell us is that the most important thing you could live for, read for, wake up for, go to work for, get married for is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I want you guys to see that so much today. So ask yourself this. As we even get started with this, as we start working through this, ask yourself this. I want you to examine yourself. And that's a, that's a tricky thing, right? I'm, and I, you say, you're saying, yeah, he wants me to look at my life. No, I'm really meaning, think about your life, right? Look, look inward at your own heart and ask, what is the center of my life? For some of you coming in here today, like, you would tell me that Christ is your center. If I, if I got you one-on-one, unless God's working through your heart, you're not going to tell me Christ is not the center. Right? But for a lot of you coming in, it's money. Man, money has got a hold on you, and you will do whatever it takes to make it. Right? You will buy, steal, kill, cheat, destroy. Like, it don't matter for the dollar. Right? Maybe I should start trying that because my dollars are running thin. No, I'm just kidding. Bro. For some of you, it's your, it's your family. Guys, I've seen, and like, I, I, now I understand the pool. Right, I've got a kid now. I've been married for uh, almost three years now. I understand the pool, right? Your family just becomes the most important thing. Like, if I could just get my kid into Harvard, right? My kid ain't going to Harvard. It just ain't going to happen, right? 
If I could just make my, if I could just get a, on a date with my wife, if I could just buy my kid the nicest things, if I could make them happy, if I could get them what they need. Oh, uh, did she cough? Let me come in here and check on her, right? I understand that pool, right? But for a lot of us, when we wake up, the thing that's most on our mind is our family. It's our children. It's our wife. For a lot of you, it's your job. Some of you just sell out. And it ain't even about making the money. It's about being successful. It's about climbing the ladder. I understand that pool too, right? Let me tell you something. You don't think, you think some jobs are dog eat dog? Get in the ministry. And you'll be realizing you can climb the ladder real quick, right? What's, it, what's your life centered on? Because here's what I want you to realize this morning. Only Christ is worthy of your life. So, and I want you to understand this. As I was thinking about this, God, God's been really, I'm not preaching to you first this morning. I'm preaching to myself. Because as I prepared this message, man, God has just crushed my heart because this is what he kind of told me. Jesus Christ will not be one of the many things in our lives that revolve around us. You tracking what I'm saying there? Jesus is not, we can't be in the center and Jesus be one of those things out there on the edge coming around us and we can just reach in there and come to him when we get ready for him, right? Like our family's out there, my family's for me, my job's for me, my kids are for me. Hey, and then Jesus and church, they're out there for me too. Jesus will not be one of those things. He will either be the center of our lives and our affection or he will be nothing. I want to repeat that for you because it's true. Jesus will either be everything to us or he will be nothing to us. The God of all the universe will not be subject to being a to-do list on your checklist, a to-do on your checklist. He's worthy of all glory. Don't try to relegate him to an hour a week, right? See, a lot of us, that's what we do. We come here for an hour and we think our duty's done. I can go back and I can live however I want to now because, hey, I, God's out there. I reached out there and went to him for my hour and now everything else is all right. So I only got two points today. I mean, some of y'all are thinking two points. This is going to be the shortest sermon ever. If y'all have heard me before, y'all like two points. This is going to be an hour and a half, right? So I only got two points today. I want you to understand two things before you leave here today. First thing, if y'all are note takers, here you go. First thing I want you to understand before you leave here today is this. Jesus is worthy of your life. Whether you want to give it to him or not, that don't change somebody's worth, right? Today, I'm going to be honest with you, Bill Gates, Bill Gates is worth $88 billion, whether I like him or not, right? That's what he's worth. Today, Jesus Christ is worthy of your life, whether you like it or not, whether you submit to him or not. And then number two, second point is this. Your life should revolve around Jesus. That's the only two points we're going to work with today. So let's get into it. Uh, so the first thing I want you to see is this, that Jesus is worthy of your life. And if you have your Bible, we're going to stay right here in verses 22 through 25 for just a second before we kind of jump around, all right? So Jesus is worthy of our lives. Let me ask you something. What makes Jesus so worthy? Why should we look to Jesus and say, you're it, God. Nothing else is important next to you. I don't know if any of y'all have read through the Gospels, but go read them. Because when Jesus comes on the scene, let me tell you what he tells his disciples or people who he wants to follow him. Listen, this is what he tells them. Your family's not important anymore. Your job's not important anymore. Your dreams aren't important anymore. Your goals aren't important anymore. And they're like, Jesus, what is important? Right? I don't know if you read the Bible, but this is the way he talks. One guy comes to him and says, God, let me go bury my father. And he says, hey, don't look back. He wouldn't even let him go bury his father. One, one guy comes to him and says, I, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, I'm going to be honest with you, 
You probably, I hope a house ain't important because you probably ain't going to have one. And, he's, and he walks away, right? These people come to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, let me tell you what's most important if you want to follow me. Nothing else, just me. So I'm wondering where your, where your heart's at. Why is he so worthy? Why? So a couple things that stick out to me in these verses. Look at verse 22 right here with me. Verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in him. Think about this. Jesus is worthy of your life because Jesus is the only man who has ever lived and who has never sinned. Now, I don't know about you, but I won't be able to finish this sermon today before I sin. And chances are you won't be able to sit there and listen to this sermon without sinning, right? Because about 10 minutes from now, y'all are going to be standing, y'all are going to be thinking, I wish this guy would shut up and stop blowing hot air because I'm getting hungry, right? Right? Y'all are not going to be respecting the Word of God. Right? And about 10 minutes in this thing, I'm going to be wondering in my head, I wonder if I'm preaching a good sermon. I won't be able to sit here without getting through this, without, get through this sermon without sinning. Jesus never once sinned. It says there was no sin in him. Fathom this. Christ lived for 33 years and never entertained a lustful thought, man. Not once in 33 years did he look at a woman with lust in his heart. Not once in 33 years, women, did, God, did Jesus Christ ever speak a gossiped word about another person. Not once in 33 years did he ever speak an obscene word or disrespect his parents or become jealous of another. Listen, the Bible said, we read it a couple weeks ago, that he was a spotless lamb. He was like one of those lambs in the Old Testament they offer for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't say, God didn't tell the people of Israel, I want the worst of the worst. He said, I want the best of the best. And you know what Jesus was? He was a lamb without spot or blemish. He was literally a perfect sacrifice. That's why Jesus is worthy. Do you know of another religion that has a king so worthy? Let me ask you this. Did Muhammad live 33 years without sin? No, it's known that he was cruel to women and beat a lot of his wives, right? Did Buddha live 33 years without sinning? Go read a biography on the man. He indulged in sexual uh, sores all over the place. He was, he was a horrible person, right? Jesus is the only religious leader, you go study him, who lived 33 years and didn't sin. And he's the only religious leader who his followers, after he, died, after he resurrected, claimed that for him. No, but no other religious leader in the world has claimed such. Jesus' followers do. Jesus is worthy too, not just because he didn't sin. Look at verse 24. This is, let me tell you something. This might be one of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. Let me read that first part again. Man, that's good. He himself bore, does that say his sins? No, it says our sins. He, he himself bore our sins. Say that with me. He himself bore our sins. Put that in your heart, our sins. In his body on the tree. Let me tell you what that tree is talking about, the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Let me tell you something. On the cross, Jesus Christ was crucified for something you did. Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross for something I did. Jesus Christ was not crucified for anything that he did. Does that not sound unjust to you? We don't send people to death row for something that we do, Right? Judges don't do that. The man who does the crime faces the punishment. The woman who commits the crime faces the music, right? That's the way our society operates. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus took what you did. And the Bible says he took it on his head. Check this out. The sin that was on Dallas Wilson's head. 
I don't know if y'all know this, but in the old times, when somebody was locked up in a jail cell, that what Peter's referring to here is they used to put the, the crimes that they were arrested for over the top of their jail cell, right? So that the crimes would literally be on their head, or if they were crucified, they would literally put them on the top of the cross. But get this, the sins that would have been attached to my name, Jesus put them on his cross. He paid for my sin. The guilt that covered my heart. How many of you have ever struggled with guilt? Can we just be honest? I mean, listen, let me tell you something. If I I sin, I'm torn between walking in forgiveness and beating myself up in guilt, right? And I felt it. And get this, the guilt that covered my heart was placed on Christ on the tree. It's not my guilt anymore. Christ paid for it. He bore my weight. He bore my weight. Let me ask you something. Does this not move you? Because a lot of times when we get to preaching, and I get, to, I love it because right, y'all think I'm being, y'all think I'm just, like, man, he's 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 mad or something, right? Faces get stone cold, right? And we're just like, man, this is this is hard, right? It, it hardens us up, it tenses us up. Does this not move you? Does the reality that Christ died for your sin not move your heart? Does it not pull you? Does it not make you want to leap and shout and sing? I want to tell you something I read this morning. Uh, it's, it's funny. It was God. It was God doing something, preparing me for this message this morning. This morning I was reading, uh, and I was reading in Romans, and I was reading something that went along with it. And this guy said, he said, go back and read any of the Old Testament prophecies. And I've never thought about this. He said, go back and read any of the Old Testament prophecies about Christ coming to pay for sin. And he said, you'll never find one prophecy without praise. You don't know why? Because any time the people in the Old Testament looked to Jesus and they said, there's somebody coming. He's going to pay for our sin. They could see it. They could see the cross. They couldn't see it with their sight yet, but they could see it by faith. Any time they looked to it, they said, God, thank you. God, thank you. Does that not move you in the same way? It should, it should, make, us te- it should make us tear up. I'm wondering, if it, have any of you ever cried because of the fact that Jesus died for your sin? I'm wondering if any of you have ever just been overcome with joy at the fact that when you die, Christ paid for your sin and you get heaven. I'm wondering this morning. Listen, the Bible says, he, by his wounds we are healed. Is that not an awesome statement? Do you know that when they crucified Christ, they, they tied him to a, a wooden plank and before they, they crucified him, they, they did what was called a Roman scourge, which was the equivalent of being beaten to death. Maybe if Jesus survived it, they were going to crucify him, right? But they, they beat him and on his open back, there would be, have been wounds and lacerations where the flesh would have been torn, right? And guess what the Bible's saying right here? By the wounds that Christ suffered, your salvation has been accomplished. Guys, that's, that is good news. His, his wounds were my healing. His blood was my payment. His body on the cross is my righteousness. Though I deserve the wrath of God, guys, I deserve to be sent into a sinner's hell, separated from the, the love and pleasure of God. Though I deserve the wrath of God for my sin, because of Christ's work on the cross, I receive the reward of a son, not the punishment of a sinner. Do you realize that I should have been crucified next to Christ on the cross? But instead of being crucified next to Christ on the cross, on the day that I die, he'll give me a son's inheritance. I don't know if y'all have ever read this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Literally, my favorite verse in the Bible says this. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, Jesus knew no sin, so to, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
I want to ask you this morning. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ ever come to you in such a way that it was good news? Now, let me, let me tell you something. Some of y'all know what good news is. Amen? Some of y'all know what bad news is. Some of y'all know what good news is. All right? Let me, let me explain to you. Bad news is when you get the cancer diagnosis. All right? Good news is when you're healed from the cancer diagnosis. All right? Imagine, imagine if you're that person, right? Some of you don't have to imagine. But imagine you're that person and you've got cancer and it don't look good, right? That's bad news. You've received the punishment. You've received it in yourself and you're thinking, God, I can't get through this. But a few weeks later, a few months later, a few years later, you go in and they say, guess what? You're cancer free. In that moment, can you imagine the relief, the sense of the all that's come upon you? Because guess what? I've been healed, right? I'm new. I'm made new. That, that, in that moment, that's good news news, okay? All right. Some of you, you've had friends and loved ones on your deathbed. That's the bad news. You're not going, how, God, how can I get through that? And then what happens? God miraculously works. He moves and they're healed. That's good news. You hear that and it's good news. Listen, what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that the bad news is what you know, that you're a sinner destined for hell, but the good news has come to you and it's God saying you have been forgiven of your sin by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but some of you don't act like it's good news. Some of you act like it's average news. Let me tell you something. There's a difference between average news and good news. When my wife tells me what we're having for supper, if it's something I don't really like, that's average news. It does not excite me. When I have been told that Jesus Christ paid for my sin in full, that is good news and it should move my heart. I am right before God because of his work on the cross. This is the gospel. It's not about, mainly the gospel is not calling you to do something. Mainly the gospel is calling you to look to see what's already been done for you. Is it good news to you this morning? Is it good news? Last thing I want you to see from this little passage, look at verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we were like lost sheep, and Peter says here we've been brought back to our shepherd. What I want you to see from this morning, this t- that right there, is that we were enemies with God. We were made to walk with God. That, and if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible says God walked with us in the cool of the day. That is what we were created to do. We were happy. We were fulfilled. Then co- along comes Genesis 3, and Satan and sin and humans rule, ruin all of it, right? And ever since that day, there has been a wall up between us and God. And it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can be the best good little boy, best good little girl you want to be, but that wall of sin is there between you and God. And guess what? There was nothing you could do to overcome it. On the cross, Jesus took a sledgehammer, and brick by brick by brick, he tore down the wall of sin that separated us from Christ. And once again, some of you hear that and it's not a big deal. Some of you hear that and you just don't understand why I'm so excited. Let me tell you something. You need to get more in the Word. Because if you go go through the Old Testament, you'll read and you'll read about something when they built the temple called the Holy of Holies. All right? After sin has infiltrated the, 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 uh, the world, man cannot dwell with God anymore. If man sees God, what happens is man falls dead, right? Because God is holy and man is sinful. 
So there was this thing called the Holy of Holies, and, the, and it was in the temple, and people would go to the temple to worship, but there was a line, and across that line was called the Holy of Holies, and what would happen is you would sit here, and you would look out across, and you would say, this is as close as I can ever get to God. Do you know that you were created by a God that you could never get close to? Seeing, it, it, it separated for you. And if anybody was crazy enough to say, you know what, I want to get a peek of God. I want to go in. They, the moment their foot hit the floor, they, would, they dropped dead. Because that sin, it was just like a wall. You know what happened on the day that Jesus died? The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in half. You know what that was meaning? It means that you can dwell with God. Here's what I want a lot of you to realize. A lot of, to a lot of you, that's not good news. Like, it doesn't move you. It's because you don't realize this. The only way you'll ever walk in fulfillment and happiness is to have a personal relationship with the God who created you. I, I read a C.S. Lewis quote one time. It says this, God cannot give us happiness apart from himself because it does not exist. A lot of people, they go through this life and they're looking for happiness. They're looking for something to satisfy. They're looking for something, the, the next fix, the, the next high, the next shacking up, the next whatever it may be, right? They're looking for it. And it never satisfies because it's not there. I believe that Peter made this the center, the center of the passage about how Christians should live their everyday lives. So we're about to talk about how we should live our everyday lives. I believe Peter made this the center of the passage about how Christians should live their everyday life because he knows that once we know the truth of the gospel, Jesus becomes the center of our life. So let me tell you what, how, Jesus, how you're not going to grow closer to Jesus. By waking up tomorrow morning and saying, I need to try harder. I need to work harder. I need to read my Bible more. I need to know more. I need to pray more. Let me tell you something. You try all you want to to do that, and you're not going to grow any closer to Jesus, I promise you. Because that's not the gospel. That's you working. Once you look to the cross and see Jesus has already done it all, there's something that happens when the gospel moves from your head and it sinks down deep in your heart that says, you know what? I want to know Jesus more. When the gospel moves from your head and it sinks deep in your heart, your life naturally begins to start revolving around Jesus. It happens naturally. So let me ask you this this morning. Is Christ the centerpiece of your life? Is Christ the centerpiece of your life? I told you about a centerpiece on my table. I told you about finding the center of the wall. Is Christ the centerpiece of your life? Because I want to explain something to you. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian what this is not true of. What I mean by that is you read through the New Testament and there is no such thing as a Christian who is not revolving their every single waking moment around Jesus. Now, that don't mean we're going to be perfect at that. Sometimes we're going to get a little bit out of orbit. God will correct that orbit. God will put it back. But there is nothing in the New Testament of a person who has a genuinely, genuinely saving, saved relationship with Jesus Christ who says, I'm at the center of Jesus is for me. It's not in there. So I'm asking you this morning, is Jesus the center of your life? And if he's not, what does that say about your relationship with him? So that's the first thing. Jesus is worthy of your life. So let's move on to the second thing. Uh, Russ, I don't know if you can do this. I'm going to test you. Uh, 2 Peter, I mean, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Can you pull that up? The Christian life should revolve around us, okay? Oh, it should revolve around Jesus. I'm sorry. The Christian life should revolve around Jesus. So 
Pete, well, I told you, Peter gives us uh, four areas of our everyday lives that should be revolving around Jesus, right? So this is where we're going to get kind of practical today. Peter looks at us and he says, listen, I'm going to give you four things that your life should be revolving around Jesus in this way, right? So the first area that Peter comes to, he says, this is the area you should revolve around life, your life around Jesus, is your public life, all right? So the way you live every day in public. So verse 13 through 17 says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to, the, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So what Peter's talking about here is the way you live in public, right? The way you live under authority, the way you live under government, right? That's what Peter's talking about. And he gives us just a few things, really practical. Here we go. This first thing he tells you is to respect authority. And he doesn't tell you what authority you should respect. He just says respect every authority. Let me give you a, a couple of quick things as to what that means. It means you don't get to choose. Don't matter if you like the president or not, he's your president. And guess what you need to do? Respect him. How about this? We all got a problem with this. Yeah, I know you have a problem with this because of this. Get a speeding ticket this afternoon and let's see how much you respect authority. Y'all gonna be like, that police officer, don't he know I was in a hurry? Don't he know I was in a hurry? Don't he know I was busy? Right? You weren't respecting the sign that said 55 five times as you passed it, right? You, were, you, you had a problem with authority. Uh, my wife is kind of good at this. We get, on, uh, we get on 16, and we'll get to going, guys. And I look over there, and I'm like, we're kind of going fast, right? So I kind of look over there as I'm taking my eyes off the road for just a second, and she's going like 92, right? Not really, but it feels like it. I'm like, baby, you know, you should probably slow down a little bit. We're about to come through Pooler right here, and they'll give you a ticket, you know. Well, if they pull me over from 92 and a 65, they just go out to give me a ticket. <laughs> I'm like, well, let me tell you what you're about to get, a ticket, right? <laughs> but we all have problems with authority. We have problems with authority. Peter says that if uh, we're really honoring God, we should respect authority. How about this? He also says that we should do good. Verse, uh, verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance and foolish people. Let me tell you something. Anytime the Bible says this is the will of God, you should pay close attention. So God, what is God saying you should do? You should do good. How should you do good? In every way possible. When should you do good? Every day. People who know how good God has been to them long to do good to other people. Do good. How about this? He also says, Honor everyone. Honor everyone. Now, how hard is that? Let me tell you something. I didn't realize how big a problem our society had with honoring people until this past year in the election. And I really wouldn't have seen it then had it not been for Facebook. I just want to encourage some of you, go home and delete your Facebook. You don't need it because you don't know how to talk to people on it. We had a conversation here earlier today. The moment somebody thinks that you're disagreeing with them, you become public enemy number one. And you are, you are shunned. And guess what? A lot of y'all saying, mm-hmm. Some of y'all doing it too, right? Some of y'all say something y'all don't agree with, and y'all were like, I got I to gotta speak my mind about that. No, you don't. 
You know what honoring everyone means? It means honor everyone means we know how to disagree with others in a Christ-like way. It means we don't have to get mad. It means we can respect the opinions of others who are different than us, even though we don't have to agree with them. It means we show the same love and grace that Christ showed us when we were enemies to him. It means that we look to other people and see they are made in the image of God just like I am, and I'm going to give them that respect. And why do we do this? Look at, look at those verses. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake. It says, love the brotherhood, fear God. He says, it says this is for the will of God. Why should you act like this in public? Because if, if your life is really centered on Christ, you want to live in such a way that Christ is honored in your everyday life. How about this? We're going to go to the next section right there. It's 18 through 21, if you got it, Russ. Second, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 21. You not, only, you not only should revolve your public life around Jesus, you should also revolve your, way, your work life around Jesus. So I want to encourage you with this. The Bible does not allow you to compartmentalize your life, right? The Bible doesn't allow you to say, my life is a chest of drawers, and this drawer right here is going to be Jesus, and this drawer right here is going to be work, and I can keep those two things separate. That's not how Jesus operates, Jesus is saying here that Christians should glorify God in everything they do. Let's read these verses. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, when one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. We're not allowed to compartmentalize our lives here. Peter is saying the cross has to be the most important thing in your everyday life. He's saying the cross has to be the most important thing when you wake up and go to work in the morning. Let me ask you this. How many of your lives would, how many of you would change the way you live your life? How different would your approach to your job be if you saw everything you did at work as an opportunity to glorify God and love people? How different would it be? If you woke up and went to work in the morning and said, God, I don't know how I'm going to do it today, but I want to glorify you through this job, so help me. How different would it be if you saw every coworker you had as a, as a lost soul instead of just another face? And guys, the Bible gives us motivation for doing this. In Colossians 3.23, the Bible says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. You know what he's saying? That your boss is not your boss. Your boss is Jesus. First and foremost, you're, you're, you're called to live a life for Christ, not live a life that honors your boss. How different would it be if you thought like that? And take heart here. This is good news. When your work is hard, when you're going through and like you just don't feel like you can go another day, like you're tired, the work's been too much for you lately, take heart because what, do you, what does he say? For, this, for to this you have been called. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What's he saying? He's saying when you're at work and it's, and you're, it's hard and you don't think you can continue to go on, guess what he's saying? Is in that moment, you're being a witness to the world around you because in the same way that you're suffering, Christ also suffered. Some of you, as I, I was convicted about this, personally this weighed on me. Personally this weighed on me, but I was convicted even, even more as I look out and see some of your faces. Some of you need to begin to take your work more seriously because Peter is telling you this morning that the only example of Jesus some of your coworkers are ever going to see 
is the way that you either work for the Lord or disrespect the Lord in the way you work. It's the only way they're going to see you. And if you care about their salvation at all, if you care about where they spend eternity at all, you need to work as for the Lord and not as for men. When the gospel moves from our heads down deep into our hearts, we revolve our lives around Jesus, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 too. Let's keep going. We've got to move real quick. Uh, 3, 1 through 8, or 1 through 7. So now we'll talk about how, how God's calling us to revolve our married lives around Jesus. So, okay, so the question is this. How can I revolve my marriage around Christ? How can I make sure Christ is at the center of my marriage? Look at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. I'm going to give you the 1,000-mile high view because we don't have time to go into a lot of it, right? But th- this is specifically for married couples, but I want to encourage you. If you're single here today, this applies to you too, all right? So verses 1 through 6. It says, likewise, wi- likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of you do not obey the word, they may be warned without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the subject, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. Verse five, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves as submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightened. Listen, that could be a sermon series right there all in itself. Just that one passage. But the main thing this passage is communicating to women is that God is calling women to live and submit to their, to live a life that honors God and submit to their husbands and to focus on what on their hearts internally, not the world externally. And Peter begins here talking about calling women to submit to Christ and he puts a big emphasis on it. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I was reading this in my quiet time for Connect Group and I, I, was, I started wrestling with this passage. I'm like, Peter, why is this the main thing you're calling a woman to do? Like, Peter, don't you know women can do a lot? Why are you, just, why are you telling her to just be quiet? Like, I don't understand it, Peter. I, and I really wrestled with this. And the more I focused on it, the more I felt like God spoke it in my heart. Peter spends so much time focusing on why submitting to the husband because he paint, he's painting a picture here of the inner qualities of a heart of a heart of a godly woman. He's painting the inner qualities of a woman with a heart of respect and purity and gentleness and fearlessness. Those are the qualities of a godly woman. And then he's painting this picture because get this, wives especially, you're the fruit of a godly heart in a woman is evidenced most by the way that she loves her husband. You tracking what I'm saying? What I'm telling you is the way that you reveal your heart, many times the way you reveal if your heart's a heart after God's own heart is the way you look to your husband and love him. What Peter is calling for here is he's calling for women who center their lives on Christ, who are respectful and pure and gentle and quiet and who fear nothing to rise up and live mighty lives for God. And single ladies, make no mistake, this applies just as much to you as it does to married women. Let me tell you something, ladies. I'm saying that a lot. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you this. God is not concerned so much about the, the march on Washington yesterday as he is about the march of women rising up from the churches to be godly women. And I say that because, listen, I think men have been getting a bad rap. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Some, some of us, we got a lot of work to do. 
But we put it all off on the men. Where are the godly men? Where are the godly men? Let me tell you, and the more I read this passage and saw the heart of a godly woman, I'm asking, where are the godly women too? Where are these women who have pure hearts and who are respectful and who fear nothing that the world throws at them? who are so centered in Christ that they say, I'll do whatever God tells me to do, whenever he tells me to do it, and I don't care if my husband's lost, he'll get saved too by the way I'm living. Where are those women at? Then Peter moves on to men. I know I've got to kind of hurry through here. God's calling, uh, God's calling men to live a certain kind of life too. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as weaker vessels, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers not may, may not be hindered. Husbands, the first thing I want you to notice is the motivation for the way you should live with your wife. The motivation for, the way, for treating your wife with honor and understanding is this, so that God won't start ignoring your prayers. Did you catch that? Some of you men have been praying for months and months and months and God ain't answering you. It's because you're treating his daughter like dirt. I got a daughter now. I've been thinking a lot about that first day when this guy's going to come up to the house and he's going to ask for a date and I'm going to kill him. And y'all are laughing, but prison ministry needs a lot of work, all right? But I can promise you this. She's going to get married, and I pray every day that the man she marries loves Jesus more than I do. I really pray that every day. I pray that he's a godly man. But I can promise you this. The day that he doesn't treat her with honor, the day that he don't treat her with respect, he don't need to come to my house asking for anything. God does the same thing to men who don't know how to honor and respect their wives. Listen, God is calling for men to center their lives on Christ in such a way that they are empowered to freely love their wives in an understanding way. Men, notice this. He didn't say understand them. God ain't calling you to do the impossible. And you laugh, but I'm serious. Listen, my wife puts her socks in three different drawers. I don't understand it. But you know what I do? I fold laundry out every now and then and I put them in three different drawers wherever they go, right? Because God hadn't called me to understand everything she does and how she does it. I tell you what God has called me to do. He's called me to love her and pursue her heart and go after her in such a way that says, I understand you and I love you. And let me tell you something. The second one's harder than the first. Honor your wife. He says, honor your wife. When is the last time some of you men opened the door for your wife? When is the last time some of you men said, baby, you go sit down and let me cook supper? When is the last time some of you men said, tell me how to love you, I'd be willing to do whatever it takes? When's the last, let, me, let me ask you this. When's the last time some of you men took your wife on a date? I'm going to be honest with you. It disturbs me when I hear that married couples don't go on dates in like 17 years. It's like, you've been married for 17 years and you ain't been on a date? It, it blows me away. Husbands, it boils down to this question. Let me ask you. If you were following your leadership, would you be happy with that? Think about it. If you had to follow you, would you be happy with that? A lot of times, I look at the way I lead, and I stink. I stink. God's calling me to live in such a way with my wife that she longs to follow me, not that she has to do it begrudgingly. And single guys, let me just give you a word here. 
the worst thing you can do if you don't want to go, get into a marriage and understand your wife and pursue her heart and honor her is get married because I want to tell you what's going to happen. God's going to start ignoring your prayers. And I can tell you, you might want to be married real bad, but you don't want to be married so bad that you get in a relationship and God stops listening to you. It's time for men to man up. Being married's hard work. It's hard. People told me being married was hard work, and I didn't believe them. Being married's hard work. Last thing I want you to see this morning is that every day revolves around Jesus. All right, this question. How can I be centered on Christ every single day? So 1 Peter 3, 8 through 15. Russ, if you can get that real quick. Matter of fact, Russ, don't just get verse 9 and get verse 15 for me, if you will. Whatever's easiest for you. So last thing Peter calls us to is he calls us to every day when we wake up to realize that you're going to step out of the house today and you're going to live a life that either glorifies Christ or dishonors him. So the first thing he tells us to do in this, look at verse 9 there. It says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You know who, just, who Peter just described? Jesus. First thing Peter calls us to do is to be like Jesus. I wonder how many of us, when we go throughout our lives, even ask ourselves, am I following the example that Christ has set for me? Because when I live my life, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, it's probably, I woke up and prayed a little bit yesterday morning. Do you know it was probably 6.30 yesterday evening before I ever thought about Jesus again? Peter's calling us to live like Jesus. As we walk through life as a Christian, we have one great example for how we're to live. We're not looking to anybody else. We're looking to Jesus. His name is Jesus. Every day we're to wake up and we're to say, how did Jesus live? And then we're to go live like Jesus. We're to love like Jesus loved. We're to seek righteousness like Jesus sought righteousness. We're to hate sin like Jesus hated sin. We are, be a, be, or we are to be obedient to God as Christ was obedient to God. We're called to be like Jesus. Then the last thing, uh, Russ, verse 15, it says this, 3.15, be a witness, be a witness. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We need to understand the, por- the importance of being a witness for Christ. Being a witness for Christ is the reason that we were saved in the first place. Do you understand that? God did not look at you and save you primarily because he loved you. Now, he does. God looked at you and saved you primarily because he wanted to take you and turn you into a vessel to be used for his glory. 1 Peter 2, 9, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Jeremy just preached on it last week. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's saying the reason you were saved is so that you could tell other people about the light, about the glory of God. I gotta be honest with you. I've been, as I prepared this week, this was the place where I was convicted most. Because God has called me more than anything in this world to be a witness to just how good Jesus is. And most of the time, I can't open my mouth I go through day to day to day, and I don't ever look for an opportunity to tell people about how good Christ is. I don't ever look for an opportunity to tell people about the blessings God's given me, and I could tell you for days about how good God's been to me. 
I could go on and on and on, but I just don't. Understand why you've been saved. It's not because Jesus just loved you and he wanted you to come to heaven. It's because Jesus has a purpose for your life and that purpose is that you go and proclaim just how great he is to the outside world. How are you stacking up? As we close today, I gotta ask you, how are you stacking up? Is your life revolving around Jesus? Is your married life? Is your work life? Is your public life? Is your everyday life revolving around Christ? Because if mine's not, I want it to so bad. I, I told my wife that this week. I told my connect group that this week. I want my life to revolve around Christ so bad, but I'm too selfish. So when this altar call is played today, guess what? I'm going to be the first one down here. I need it. And I'm asking you, those of you who are saved especially, is your life centered on Christ? And I want to end this way. Some of you are lost today. And by loss, what I mean is back in the very first part, I talked about how there was a, a wall between you and God, and that wall is still there for you. It's because you've never placed your faith in Christ and trusted in Him as Savior. What's it mean to be saved? Could you put 315 back up there for me quick, real quick? To be saved is this. Listen, I, I want you to get this really quick before we close. I'm closing with this. 315 says, honor Christ the Lord. You want to know the one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion? is Christ is Lord. It means that He alone is in control. He alone is worthy of everything. I am not in control. I don't deserve all the praise. I am not most important. Christ is Lord. And so I want to encourage you with this. I really hope this is encouragement, not beating you down. Christ is either Lord of all or He is not at all. Don't fool yourself. Where Christ is not Lord, He is not Savior. And some of you have been coming to church, maybe this, some, some of you have been coming to church this whole past year, some of you have been going to church your whole life, and you've been thinking you're saved, but you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've never submitted your heart to Christ. You've never said, God, there's a throne in my heart, and right now I'm on it, but I'm going to get off the throne, God, and I'm going to give it to you because you deserve to be there. That's what it means to be saved. It means saying Christ is Lord. He is in control. I am not. He is most important. I am not. He is worthy. I am not. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Some of you have been sitting on that throne so long, it's time to get off. And what I want to ask you, is, as I close with this, what I want to ask you, is there anyone here today who said, I've been fooling myself. I've been thinking I've been saved, but Christ has not been my Lord. And you're saying today, I want to be saved. You're saying today, I want Christ to be my Lord. I want you to raise your hand. And when you do, just raise it and we're going to celebrate with you. Is there anybody here today who says, Christ is Lord, I need to submit to him? You better not drop. I mean, we will. We got one Anybody here today that says Christ is Lord? Good. Then let me tell you something, Christians. When the music starts, we should be asking God, how can I center my life on you today? Let's pray. God, I love you. I thank you for your word. Father, I am nothing and you are everything. I am not worthy, God, you are. Thank you for this word, God. Thank you for your love, Jesus. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you. Love you guys.